Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, through chapter 17, verse 13. Verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. Burkett notes, Observe 1. The wisdom of our Savior in acquainting the disciples with the near approach of his death and sufferings. This he did for several reasons. 1. To let them understand that he was really God, as they had just before confessed him to be, by his foreknowing and foretelling of things to come. 1. To convince them of their error in apprehending that his kingdom was of this world and that he was to reign here as a temporal prince. 3 to prevent their being offended at his sufferings, and to prepare them for their own, that they might neither shrink from them nor sink under them. Observe, too, the persons foretold by Christ that should be the bloody actors in this tragedy of his death, namely the rulers and chief priests. It was the poor that received Christ and embraced the gospel. It was the great ones of the world that rejected him and set him at naught, and the rulers both in the church and the state condemned and crucified him. Verse 22. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Burkett notes. No doubt Peter spake all this out of a sincere intention and with a singular affection towards our Savior. But pious intentions and good affections will not justify unwarrantable actions. From this counsel of St. Peter's to Christ, we learn, one, how ready flesh and blood is, to oppose all that tends to suffering. Master, spare thyself. 2. What need we have to be fortified against the temptation of friends as well as of enemies? For Satan can make good men his instruments to do his work when they little think of it. Peter little suspected that Satan set him on work to hinder the redemption of mankind by dissuading Christ from dying. But observe in the next verse with what indignation Christ rejects Peter's advice. Verse 23. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of man. Burkett notes, Christ looked upon Peter with anger and displeasure. Christ heard Satan speaking in Peter. It was Peter's tongue, but Satan tuned it. Therefore Christ calls Peter by Satan's name. They that will do the devil's work shall have the devil's name too. He that would hinder the redemption of mankind is Satan, an adversary to mankind. From our Savior's smart reproof given to Peter, learn that no love or respect of man's person or piety must draw us to flatter them in their sins, but cause us to speak lightly of their sins. From our Savior's resolution not to favor himself, notwithstanding Peter's advice, learn that so intent was the heart of Christ upon the great work of man's redemption that he could not bear the least word that should obstruct him in it or divert him from it. Verse 24. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Burkett notes. Observe here, one, how our Savior recommends his religion to every man's choice, not attempting by force and violence to compel any to the profession of it. If any man will come after me. That is, if any man choose and resolve to be a Christian. Two, our Savior's terms propounded. One, self-denial. 
let him deny himself, by which we are not to understand the denying and renouncing of our reason in matters of religion, but by self-denial is meant that we should be willing to part with all our earthly comforts and quit all our temporal enjoyments for the sake of Christ and his holy religion. 2. Gospel Suffering He must take up his cross, an allusion to the Roman custom that the malefactor who was to be crucified took his cross upon his shoulder and carried it to the place of execution, where note, not the making of the cross for ourselves, but the patient bearing of it when God lays it upon our shoulder is the duty enjoined. Let him take up his cross. 3. Gospel service. He must follow me. That is, obey my commands and follow my example. He must set my life and doctrine continually before him, and must be daily correcting and reforming his life by that rule and pattern. See on Luke 9, 23. Verse 25. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. Burkett notes. Observe here, one, that the love of this temporal life is a great temptation to men to deny Christ and to renounce his holy religion. Two, that the surest way to attain eternal life is cheerfully to lay down a mortal life when the glory of Christ and his service calleth thereunto. Verse 26. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and shall lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Burkett notes, Learn 1. That God has entrusted every one of us with a soul of inestimable worth and preciousness, capable of being saved or lost, and that to all eternity. 2. That the gain of the whole world is not comparable with the loss of one precious soul. The soul's loss is an incomprehensible and unrecoverable loss. Verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his work. Burkett notes, There is twofold judgment spoken of by this evangelist St. Matthew, namely a particular coming of Christ to execute vengeance on the Jews at the destruction of Jerusalem, and a general coming at the day of judgment. If we understand this place of the latter, we have then one, the judge described the Son of Man, he who was and is both God and man, shall judge both angels and men. 2. The splendor of that day declared, he shall come in glory with his holy angels. The attendance of angels shall be required by Christ, not for necessity, but for majesty. 3. The work and business of that day demonstrated, and that is, to render to every man according to his work. Learn that the judgment of the great day will be most glorious and righteous. Christ will be glorious in his person and glorious in his attendance. And the judgment will be according to righteousness, without respect of persons, according to what has been done in the body. Verse 28. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Burkett notes, a threefold sense and interpretation is given of these words. 1. Some will have them refer to our Savior's transfiguration, mentioned in the next chapter, as if he said, Some of you, as Peter, James, and John, shall shortly see me upon Mount Tabor in such glory as I will come in to judgment. 2. Others understand the words of Christ's exercising his kingly power in the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish nation, which St. John did live to see. 3. 
Others refer the words to the time of the gospel after Christ's resurrection and ascension, when the gospel was propagated and spread far and near, according to St. Mark 9.1. There are some standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God come with power. That is, till they see the increase and enlargement of the church by the gospel. Thence note that where the gospel is powerfully preached and cheerfully obeyed, there Christ cometh most gloriously in his kingdom. Chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth him up into a high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. Burkett notes. The former part of this chapter gives us an account of our Savior's glorious transfiguration. He laid, as it were, the garments of frail humanity and mortality aside for a little time, and assuming to himself the robes of majesty and glory, the rays of his divinity darted forth. His face shined with a pleasing brightness, and his raiment was such a glorious luster as did at once both dazzle and delight the eyes of the beholders. Here observe one. The reason of our Lord's transfiguration. 1. To demonstrate and testify the truth of his divinity, that he was Christ, the Son of the living God, according to St. Peter's confession just before. This divine glory was an evidence of his divine nature. 2. Christ was thus transfigured to prefigure the glory of his second coming to judgment, when he shall be admired of his saints, as here he was admired by his disciples. Observe 2. The choice which our Savior makes of the witnesses of his transfiguration, his three disciples, Peter, James, and John. But why disciples? Why three disciples? Why these three? One, the transfiguration was a type of shadow of the glory of heaven. Christ therefore vouchsafes the earnest and first fruits of that glory only to saints, upon whom he intended to bestow the full harvest. Two, Three disciples were witnesses sufficient to testify this miracle. Judas was unworthy of this favor, yet lest he should murmur or be discontented at his being left out, others are left out beside him. Three, these three rather than others, because one, these disciples are more eminent for grace, zeal, and love to Christ, and consequently are most highly dignified and honored by him. The most eminent manifestations of glory are made by God to those that are most eminent in grace. 2. These three were witnesses of Christ's agony and passion, to prepare them for which they are here made witnesses of his transfiguration. This glorious vision from Mount Tabor fitted them to abide the terrors of Mount Calvary. Learn that those whom God singles out for the greatest trials, he will fit beforehand with the best enablements. Verse 3. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Burkett notes, Observe here the glorious attendance upon our Savior at his glorious transfiguration. There were two, two men, and these two men, Moses and Elijah, this being but a glimpse of Christ's glory, not a full manifestation of it, only two of the glorified saints attended upon Christ at it. When he shall come in his full glory, Ten thousands of thousands shall attend him. These two attendants were two men, not two angels, because men were more nearly concerned in what was done. They were not only spectators, but partners. Man's restoration was Christ's principal aim, the angel's confirmation his less principal design. 
But why Moses and Elijah? 1. Moses, the giver of law, and Elijah, the chief of the prophets, attending both upon Christ, did show the consent of the law and the prophets with Christ, and their fulfilling and accomplishment in him. 2. Because these two were the most laborious servants of Christ, both adventured their lives in God's cause, and therefore are highly honored by Christ. Such as honor him, he will honor. Verse 4. Then answered Peter, and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Burkett notes. Observe here, one, the person supplicating, Peter. No doubt the other two, James and John, were much affected, but Peter is more fervent and forward. Yet there is no arguing with the papists from his fervency to his superiority. His personal prerogatives were not hereditary. Observe, too, the person supplicated, Jesus, not Moses or Elijah. The disciples make no prayer, no suit to them, but to Christ only. Prayers to saints departed are both vain and unlawful. Observe three, the supplication itself, and that was for their continuance, where they were. It is good for us to be here. Oh, what a ravishing comfort is the fellowship of the saints, but the presence of Christ among them renders their joys transporting. Observe four, their proffer of service to further this continuance. Let us make three tabernacles. This motion was well meant and devout. St. Peter will stick at no cost nor pains for the enjoyment of Christ's presence and his saints' company. Yet was the motion unadvised and rash. St. Peter erred in desiring a perpetuity of that condition which was but transient and momentary. This vision was only a taste of glory, not a full repas. He errs in that he would bring down heaven to earth and take up with Tabor instead of heaven. He errs in that he would enter upon the possession of heaven's glory without suffering and without dying. Peter would be clothed upon, but was not willing to be unclothed. Learn one, that a glimpse of glory is enough to wrap a soul into ecstasy and to make it out of love with worldly company. Two, that we are apt to desire more of heaven upon earth than God will allow. We would fain have the heavenly glory come down to us, but we are unwilling to go by death to that. We know not what we say when we talk of felicity in tabernacles upon earth. Verse 5. While yet he spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Riquette notes. Observe here, one. A cloud was put before the disciples' eyes for two reasons. One, to allay the luster and resplendency of that glory which they were swallowed up with. As we cannot look upon the sun in its full brightness, but under a cloud by reflection, so the glory of heaven is unsupportable, till God veils it and shelters us from the surcharge of it. Two, a cloud overshadows them to hinder their farther prying and looking into the glory. We must be content to behold God here through a cloud darkly. Ere long, we shall see him face to face. Observe, too, the testimony given by God the Father out of the clouds concerning Jesus Christ his Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Note here, one, the dignity of his person. He is a Son, therefore, for nature, co-essential, for dignity, co-equal, for duration, 
co-eternal with the Father, and a beloved Son because of his likeness and conformity to him. A father's likeness is the cause of love. A union of wills causes a mutual endearing of affections. Note, too, the excellency of his mediation, in whom I am well pleased. Christ in himself was most pleasing to God the Father, and in and through him is well pleased with all believers. Christ's mediation for us makes God appeasable to us. Note, three, the authority of the doctrine. Hear him. Not Moses and Elijah, who were servants, but Christ my Son, whom I have commissioned to be the great prophet and teacher of my church. Therefore, adore him as my Son, believe in him as your Savior, and hear him as your lawgiver. He honors Christ most that obeys him best. The obedient ear honors Christ more than either the gazing eye, the adoring knee, or the applauding tongue. This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Verses 6-9 through And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Burkett notes, Observe here, one, the effect which this voice from heaven had upon the apostles. It cast them into a passion of horror and amazement. They were sore afraid and fell on their faces. Learn hence that such is the majesty and glory of God that man in his sinful state cannot bear so much as a glimpse of it without great consternation and fear. How unable is man to hear the voice of God, and yet how ready to despise the voice of man. If God speaks by himself, his voice is too terrible. If he speaks by his ministers, it's too contemptible. Observe, too. The person by whom the disciples were recovered out of these amazing fears into which they were cast, namely, by Christ. Jesus came and said, Be not afraid. It is Christ alone who can raise and comfort those whom the terrors of the Almighty have dejected and cast down. Observe 3. The manner how Christ recovered them out of this passionate amazement. It was threefold. 1. By his gracious approach, he came unto them. Christ will come with comfort unto his children when they are disabled from coming to him for comfort. 2. By his comfortable touch, he came and touched them. Christ comforts believers by a real and close application of himself unto them. An unapplied Christ saves none, comforts none. 3. By his comforting voice, he said, Be not afraid. It is a word of assurance that there is no ground nor cause of fear, and it is a word of assistance. It is the operative word. He that said unto them, Arise, be not afraid, did by his Spirit breathe life and convey strength into their souls to enable them to arise. Observe 4. The strict injunction given by Christ to his disciples, not to publish or proclaim this vision till after his resurrection, for two reasons. 1. Lest it should hinder his passion. For had the rulers of the world known him to be the Lord of life and glory, they would not have crucified him. Therefore, Christ purposely conceals his deity to give way to his passion. 2. Christ being now in a state of humiliation would have his majesty veiled, his glory concealed, and consequently forbids that the glorious vision of his transfiguration should be published, and accordingly charges his disciples that they tell the vision to no man till he was risen. As if Christ had said, Tell no man the things which you have seen, not the residue of the disciples, that they be not troubled that they were not admitted to see with you, nor the believers who now follow me, that they be not scandalized at my suffering after so glorious a transfiguration. 
verses 10 through 13. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly shall come first and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah is come already, and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Burkett notes, Here we have the disciples' question and our Savior's answer. They ask our Savior how the observation of the Jewish doctors holds good, that Elijah must come before the Messiah come. We see the Messiah, but we see no Elijah. Our Savior answers that Elijah was come already, not Elijah in person, but one in the spirit and power of Elijah, one of his spirit and temper, to wit, John the Baptist, who was prophesied of under the name of Elijah. And indeed, great was the resemblance between the Elijah of the Old Testament and of the New, namely, John the Baptist. They were both born in bad times. They were both zealous for God and religion. They were both undaunted reprovers of the faults of princes. They were both hated and implacably persecuted for the same. Learn that hatred and persecution, even unto death, has often been the lot and portion of such as have had the zeal and courage to reprove the faults of princes. Elijah is come, and they did unto him whatsoever they would. <laughs>